0: The scripture for this morning comes from Matthew 12. It's on page four of your worship folders. While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. As many of you know, since Easter, we've been exploring the gospel of Matthew in the New Testament as a community and seeking to answer this question, Why follow Jesus? And today we're at the end of that series in what might at first blush appear to be a, a rather uh, fairly benign, maybe an odd episode in uh, about this, this response to Jesus, to his family. Um, they inquire of him, they're seeking after him, and he gives this sort of odd response. But after studying uh, and meditating on this passage this week, I, I think, I think, I, what I hope to show this morning is that I think this episode, while at first blush being rather benign and odd, is actually it contains some of the central elements of what makes Jesus worth following, worth believing, worth banking your entire life on. So let's look at that uh, this morning. Well, first we're going to look at uh, why we should follow Jesus. Why we should follow Jesus, that's first. And then second, we'll see what it looks like to follow him. So why follow Jesus and then what it looks like to follow him? Why follow Jesus? You may see the same polls that I do. They say something like this, 60 to 80% of people claim to believe in God. Uh, What's odd about that number, 60 to 80% of Americans, people living in North America, what's odd is that the number of people that attend church is 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 a lot less. It's maybe at at its best 20%. Uh, So people, 60 to 80% of people claim to believe in God, but hardly even 20% of people with any frequency actually attend uh, a a Christian church. And sociologists, as you might imagine, have all kinds of fun with those statistics. Why don't people attend the church? Maybe Maybe it's too institutionalized. Maybe people aren't attracted to religion anymore. Uh, maybe it's because the church harbors too much hypocrisy. Maybe. Those might all be true. But I think a better explanation might be found in, in in asking those people who claim to believe in God what kind of God they believe in. See, I think it's generally true. I don't know what your experience is, but I think it's generally true that when people say they believe in God, uh, what they believe or what they understand about who God is, um, what God is, Uh, They view God to be some kind of being who lives up in the sky, who maybe looks disdainfully at the world, uh, sometimes perhaps intervenes with miracles or does miraculous things, and this God, uh, maybe most well-known to people, uh, sends good people to heaven when they die, and he sends bad people to the other place, to the H-E double hockey sticks, And of course, if that's the kind of God you believe in, then you've got a point. I mean, he's the kind of being that hardly evokes a compelling reason to go to church, to worship him, to learn about who he is. He's surely not worth getting out of bed in the morning, especially if there's a new brunch place in town or you have bored teenagers or noisy toddlers, but what if, what if God was unlike anything that you or I ever imagined he would be? What if he confounded all of your categories and he blew the lid off all your assumptions about who he was? Well, I think that's what Jesus is actually doing in this rather odd story in Matthew 12. The problem, I think, is that many of us particularly those of us who are religious, many of us who have followed Jesus for years, uh, the problem for us is that I think we have become so familiar with the Bible, we've become so familiar with Scripture that we have failed to understand how startling and how upsetting and how shocking this Jesus really is. We've tended to sanitize Jesus and then become desensitized to Scripture. What do I mean? That's a bold claim, so what do I mean? Take, for example, this tiny episode at the end of Matthew 12 in verses 46 through 50. Jesus' family comes to him while he's in the middle of teaching. Now you have to understand what's happening here. Uh, Jesus' mother mother and brothers um, aren't just asking to speak to him. They're not just um, making a request um, to say, hey, Jesus, come and talk to us. They're actually demanding it. In the Middle East, this is the way culture works. Uh, it's not like, uh, for many of, many of us who are familiar with American culture, uh, this is not how America works. You turn 18 and you're, you're out of the house, you're home free. But in Eastern culture, even still today, you owe your family extraordinary obligations. So Jesus' family is, is demanding to see Jesus. And from other parallel stories in the Gospels, uh, in Mark and Luke, uh, we know that it's because they think Jesus is out of his mind. They think he's nuts. And do you see how Jesus responds? He responds not by addressing his mother and brothers, but talking about someone else entirely. Talking about his capital F, father. What does he mean? Who is he talking about? Well, this is not printed in your bulletin, but if you, we looked at it several weeks ago, if you were here. Uh, back in Matthew chapter 11, uh, we have a record of Jesus uh, praying. He's, he's, he's teaching, and in the middle of this teaching, he begins praying. And Jesus begins praying, and he begins saying this, I praise you, Father. That's the same language that's in Matthew 12. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Do you see what he's saying? He's not referring to his earthly adopted father, the, the man that uh, through eyewitness historical records we know to be this man named Joseph. He's not referring to that man. Jesus is talking about God, the creator of everything, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's addressing the Lord of heaven and earth, very casually referring to him in the most intimate language available, the relationship of a father and son. Jesus is claiming the kind of relationship he has with the Lord of heaven, the God of the universe, ultimate reality, the transcendent. He's saying, I have a relationship with that being, and it's like a father and a son. Now, this is radical. Some of you are saying, well, of course, I've been in church, I've heard this all my life, but it's radical. Don't get get so familiarized with Jesus that you miss this point. What Jesus is saying here, very casually, was unprecedented in Jewish culture. It never occurred before. Speaking of and to God with that kind of intimacy, why does that matter? Why does it matter? First, it matters because Jesus will go on to say that the only access to God, the only way you can get in touch with ultimate reality and transcendence is through him. That means you can only get to God through Jesus. There's no place else. There's no other shortcut. There's no other spiritual alternatives. And I know that in our culture in 2019 in Orange County, that is a tough pill to swallow. We want to believe, I think we all, I think at some level we want to believe that everyone has sort of a, a perspective, a truth. They all have they all can have a little bit of that and they all bring that to the table. Maybe it's it's the case that all religions have a part of the story, right? They're seeing part of ultimate reality in a correct way. And Jesus says, no. There's one way. Through the Son of the Father. That's it. That's why it matters. And it matters secondly because if there's no place else to know God, if he's the only way that you can get access to this divine being, to ultimate reality itself... If this is the way that you get in touch with the transcendent, then Jesus's communion, his relationship, his son, what he's referring here as father and son, his sonship, this one of a kind intimacy and sonness that Jesus has, it belongs to eternity. Something about God has, he is a father from all eternity. Did you get that? See, Jesus came from a culture. In which, in a religion, in which everyone's life verse, we all have life verses, everyone's life verse in Jewish culture was this Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But Jesus is referring to this God as his father, indicating two things. One, that Jesus existed before his birth. Keep tracking with me. One, Jesus existed before his birth. Second, this God, Lord of heaven and earth, is somehow. Somehow, mysteriously, infinitely, eternally personal. See, part of what it means for this God to be God is to have this father son relationship, this dynamic that has been going on for all eternity. And that means that ultimate reality is ultimately relational, it's deeply personal. It means there's a dynamic, a reality at the heart of the universe that is essentially self-giving love. The Father adoring and exalting the Son, the Son exalting and loving the Father. And we don't even have time to get into the Holy Spirit this morning. But look, the point is this. God is far more compelling. He's far more beautiful. He's far more glorious. He's far more dynamic than you ever realized Back to this language of the father and the son. Epiphanius was a pastor theologian on the island of Cyprus in the early 4th century. He said this, if Christ is the son of God, by all means he is God. If he is not God, he is not the son of God. Or to paraphrase the 20th, 21st century, late night stand-up comedian Stephen Colbert, if the son of a duck is a duck, then the son of God Is God. What I'm describing here for the last couple of minutes has come to be called by theologians the hypostatic union. And some of you are saying, that sounds like a bunch of theological gobbledygook. But consider this, if Jesus was born of a woman, if Jesus was born of a woman and yet pre-existed as the Son of God from all eternity, if he is in fact God come in the flesh, to rescue people then statements like this one that occur earlier in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, all things have been entrusted to me by my father. There it is again, the language of the father and the son. All things have been entrusted to me by my father are both terrible and comforting. All things have been entrusted to Jesus and that is both a terrifying truth and a comforting truth. It's terrible. It's terrifying because Jesus owns it all. All things are his. Your life, his. Your career, his. Your kids, his. Your 401k, his. Your accomplishments, his. Your sexuality, his. You are not your own. Your destiny belongs to him. You owe everything to this Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your boss. He's your king. This is one of the reasons why, why Christianity can never be privatized. You can never say about Christianity, uh, it's just what you do over here in a corner, that's okay. Keep your religion private. Jesus is claiming to be the ultimate authority in the universe. That's why this is always a public truth claim. But friends, at the exact same time, as terrifying as that may be, don't you see how comforting that is? Don't you see how because of that truth you can relax? Relax. All things have been entrusted to Jesus. Friends, your life is His. Your career or loss of it is His. Your loved ones or their death belongs to Him. Your financial security belongs to Jesus. And if this God, if this Jesus was willing to enter into our world, if he was willing to get his hands dirty, if he was willing to stoop this low, don't you imagine that he has something amazing planned for you? Don't think for a moment that in all the difficulties, in all the pain, in all the suffering, in all the heartache, in all the loss, that he is absent All things are entrusted to this Jesus. Why should you follow Jesus? Because he's the son of God. Because he's God come to meet you. Because he's God come to rescue you. Because he's your creator. And he's the only one in whom true happiness can be found. That's why you should follow this Jesus. Point two, what does following Jesus look like? Can you remember three words? If you can, you'll begin to get a grasp of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And if you can't remember three words, let's talk after the service. Followers of Jesus are those who sit. They are those who do, and they are those who belong. Followers of Jesus are those who sit. Look at what Matthew, the author, is doing in these last very few short verses of Matthew 12. Look at the physical descriptions of the characters Jesus's mother and brothers are described as those who stood outside. From other passages in the New Testament, we know that at this point it's highly unlikely that they are trusting in who Jesus is. They at this point do not believe the claims that he is making. Of course, later, as many of you know, they do arrive many of them do arrive at this truth. In fact, Uh, Some of Jesus' own brothers become leaders in the church. They write letters in the New Testament. But here at this moment, they're standing outside. And if they're standing outside, what do you think the posture of those who are around Jesus at this moment while he's teaching is? They're undoubtedly sitting inside. Doing what? They're listening to Jesus. They're sitting and they're listening to Jesus. See, a hallmark of following Jesus is listening to Jesus. And I'm not talking about hearing voices. I'm not talking about listening to your inner self. I'm talking about this book. I'm talking about the Bible. It's an essential part of what following Jesus looks like. Following him means listening to him. It means learning from him. It means first not getting up and getting busy doing things for Jesus, but sitting down in the presence of this rabbi and having him retrain you, reorient your life, re-instruct you about what life is ultimately about. And that's something that you and I never outgrow. We never move beyond sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him followers of Jesus are also those who do. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but look, following Jesus means things in your life are going to get weird. You're going to spend a few hours on Sunday morning gathering with a group of people who don't think like you, who don't look like you, who don't vote like you, because you all worship a Jewish man who was crucified as a common criminal And then based on eyewitness claims and testimony, people claim to see him three days later alive. And you're going to have water splashed on your head because he told you to. You're going to sing songs to this man. You're going to teach your kids about him. You're going to take little pieces of bread and a sip of wine because he said to. And then you're going to orient your life around this person maybe giving up finances or time or upward career mobility to serve the church or your neighbors or your community because you believe that you are part of a kingdom that is about the business of renewing all things. Why? Why would you do all that? Because as Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. See, we're going to obey Jesus and do the will of his Father in heaven no matter the cost, no matter the insults, no matter the sacrifice. In life and in death, we are pledging to give ourselves to this Jesus. Do you realize that? Those of you who are here today and you consider yourself spiritual, uh, but you're not religious, maybe you're agnostic. I'm glad you're here, but friend, friend, Let me speak to you today. There is a cost to following this Christ. Don't come to Jesus because you think it will make things easier in your life. It will not. It will most assuredly get more difficult. Friend, you need to count the cost. See, ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's saying you need to surrender your whole life, your whole will, your whole being and obey the fathers. He is asking of you and of me, friends, far more than you would ever plan to give. But listen, at the exact same moment, he can give you infinitely more than you would ever ask or think. See, followers of Jesus are those who belong. They are those who sit, those who do, and those who belong. The mother and brothers of Jesus, they're demanding to see him. Earlier, I said this is the way that culture works in the Middle East. Family brings with it, as many of you know, strings. Uh, in the East, if you become a mayor of a village or a town, it's expected that you would hire all of your relatives to cushy taxpayer-funded jobs. And in our culture, we call that nepotism. In the Eastern, in the Eastern world, uh, that's part of their culture. It's being a good son, being a good daughter. Because a son and a daughter has obligations, right? You share whatever you have. It's patronage. Your family belongs to you and you belong to them. You are expected to support and defend them, right or wrong. You can't let them be shamed. You need to protect their honor. And see, at this moment, everyone is expecting Jesus to drop everything and deal with his family as the first priority. Jesus, this is your family. You owe them everything. You have obligations to them. And Jesus isn't being insulting by say, asking this question, who are my mother and my brothers? What is he doing? He's saying, you all are my mother and my brothers. You, the people sitting right here, you can expect this from Jesus. Jesus will drop everything and meet you. You see what Jesus has done? He has obligated Himself to show you patronage, to protect you, to defend you, right or wrong, to never let you be shamed, to clothe you, to pay your debts. Why? Because you are His sisters, you are His brothers. He has taken, friends, he has taken responsibility for you because he wants to. See, you and I have this need to belong. We all do. This is why amazing stories, some of the most amazing stories that you know, involve an orphan. Because at our heart, we know we have this longing to be part of a family that brings with it security and affirmation and adoration, to be on the inside. See, what Christianity is, is it's far more than just the forgiveness of your sins. It's a welcome into a family. It's a welcome into the Father's arms, a welcome into his presence. And you see Jesus here, what he's doing. He's not saying, you could have read this verse and said, oh, this is uh, the ones who do the will of the Father. It's the ones who perform the ones who obey, the ones who do. Look at what Jesus is doing. He's stretching out his hand. These are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. He is giving a benediction. He is saying, this is reality now. You are, in spite of yourself, in spite of what you've done wrong, in spite of your good works, not because of anything that you've done, but because I name you as part of my family, I claim you. How is that possible? How, is, how can Jesus do that? How can he stretch out his hand and give them a benediction like that? People who failed him, who abandoned him, in his greatest hour of need, who left him and ran away. Because just as he's stretching out his hand in a blessing at this moment, his hands would be stretched out on a cross. He would endure the wrath of God to purchase you a place in the family of God it 's like this Steve Jobs uh, you might some of you may know this his father um, he was he was adopted his father was a Sunni Muslim and his mother was not a, 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 was not a Muslim and there was in in their culture at the time this is decades ago there was no there was no question that this that this marriage would that, that would work, so it wasn't even attempted. And Steve Jobs was adopted by a family in the United States, and he was raised in the U.S. And in his memoir, he recounts a story of this time when he's outside playing, and the neighbor kid um, learns that uh, that Stephen was was adopted, and he comes up to him and says, "Does that mean? Does that mean that your parents, your real parents, didn't want you?" And you can imagine, Stephen, at that moment, the terror, the lightning bolts going off in his head and his heart, in his soul, the wound that that inflicted on him. And he went home screaming and crying. And he went to his adoptive parents and asked, is this true? Did my real parents not want me? And they said, Stephen, we chose you. So from then on, at that moment, the the narrative of Steve Jobs, his life was no longer Steve Jobs, the unwanted, Steve Jobs, the rejected, but Steve Jobs, the chosen, Steve Jobs, the rescued, Steve Jobs, the loved. And when you see that Jesus picked you, to be a part of his family. He chose you. Do you know what that does to the narrative of your life, to the story of your life, to the wounds that you're carrying this morning? You are a child of God. He chose you. You are a child of God. He loves you. You are a child of the Father. He's done everything in the world to rescue and redeem you. I hope you hear that gospel message and I hope you're not just sort of washing your hands in it, splashing it over your head or over your heart. But I hope it's the kind of message that you receive and as all good dads do, as I've been doing this summer, that you just go out and you just, it's like a spray hose right in your face. That the Father loves you this much That he adores you this much, that he has given his all, his only begotten Son, to rescue and redeem you. There's no greater message in all the world. Let it change the narrative of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can only come to you as a father because the pre existent one, the Son, the Prince of Glory, The one who existed with you from before the ages, from before all worlds, who is God of God. We can only come to you because he has entered into our time and space to rescue and redeem, to be the one who was born of a virgin, who suffered his whole life, who was condemned as a common criminal and crucified outside of the city gates, outside of his family being rejected by everyone, this Jesus. Oh, Father, humble us. Make us see the love of Jesus, the great cost at which we were brought into your family. And at the same time, Lord, let that embolden our faith. Let it fill us with courage and confidence and hope. It's this Jesus that we worship and glorify, and it's in his name that we pray, amen.